0: And amen. Have a seat and good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Bayou City, Tom Ball. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor here at this campus, and we are studying the book of Nehemiah together. We are in Nehemiah chapter five, so you'd be flipping there, and I'll give you a little personal update. Um, I was so thankful last week, Billy jumped in um, to, to fill in as uh, I, have was, uh, I had a COVID exposure. I never contracted COVID. I had three negative tests, two negative antigens, and one negative PCR, a lot of stuff up my nose, and um, (laughs) as of Monday, those were all done, and and so I was able to go home, be with my family, which was great, and uh, so this, we are back, and I'm so glad to be back. Miss you guys last week, Um, but we're good. Never had any symptoms, never had anything like that, so it was nice to be able to to just quarantine for a week um, alone, which was very exciting and uh and be be back which i'm excited to be back uh nehemiah chapter 5 starting in verse 1 um read a book for us i'm gonna pray for us and then we will we will jump in it says this nehemiah chapter 5 starting in verse 1 now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their jewish brothers for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There they were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who, were, who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax and our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are, are as their children. Yet... We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was very upset when I heard their outcry and these words. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us this moment to gather together, that you've given us this place to gather together. And Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would open up our hearts to see the realities of of conflict, both personally, both interrelationally, but more than just the conflicts, the the reality that humans face conflicts, but you have given us um, a way of reconciliation, a way to walk through the conflicts we face in life in a healthy way, in a life-giving way. So Lord, as as we open up your word this morning, I really pray that you would help us to see the conflicts in our own interpersonal lives and help us to navigate those situations well by the power of your spirit and the work of your son. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're talking about conflict this morning, which is a good subject because you've probably never dealt with it. but when, when I first got uh, married, um, Hillary and I dated almost nine years before we got married. We started dating when she was 14 and I was 16 and we dated a long time before we got married. And, and during that process, we never really fought. We never really had much marital or what a relational conflict. And then we got married. Um, and if you want to get married, just know you are going to marry someone who's different than you. Praise God. And that person is going to have different opinions than you. Uh, and especially if you're a guy, you do things that are inappropriate in most circumstances. Uh, so this was my experience of this. Um, so I, I had come home and I was uh, fixing lunch real quick and I needed to head out to another meeting. And so I grabbed uh, just bread out of, the, out of the, the pantry and I make my sandwich and, and I go to put the bread up into the um into the refrigerator to kind of keep it fresh or whatever. So I open the refrigerator, I throw it in there. It, it doesn't quite stay, it falls out, but I've got to run. So I f- close the refrigerator, mistakenly kicking the bread, which uh, went underneath the uh, oven over there on the side. And I was like, I just got to go. And, and then later, I go through the rest of the day and it's probably like nine o'clock at night. I'm doing youth ministry, so I've got this stuff going. And then I get this text from Hillary. She's like, why is there bread under the oven? of there. And I'm like, I'm like, oh man, I, I just, I was throwing it in there. It fell out. I think I just kicked it under the oven by accident. And she's like, you kicked the bread <laughs> under the oven? And I'm like, yeah, it's just a mistake. And so I get back that, that night and, and, and she's like, what did you do? And I'm like, hey, it's fine. It's, it was on the floor for just most of the day. It's totally fine. She's like, this is not acceptable. And I'm like, what is the big deal? She's like, you kicked the bread, right? And it just became like this joke in our relationship of like, oh, think about the details, you know, just the basic details of life. And that was really our first conflict as a married couple. And just, just know, in life, you're gonna face conflict. There's gonna be conflicts at different points, points in your life. Every organization eventually faces the reality of, of conflict. And conflict divides, See, last week we looked at Nehemiah, uh, in, Nehemiah in chapter four and Billy taught that, that when there's conflict externally to the community, conflict externally can actually bring unity because it can unify you against another opposition. But conflict in the community, that causes division. And what the enemy tries to do, what Satan tries to do is build conflict within the community because when he can isolate he can intimidate and he will make you in completely ineffective for the purposes of God. If he can isolate you, he can make you completely ineffective for the purposes of God. Satan's desire is to bring disunity in the community, conflict in the community. One of um, Aesop's fables is entitled, The Four Oxen and the Lion. And it says this, a lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to warn one another so that whichever way he approached, he was met by horns of the other one. At last, however, they fell a quarrel in among themselves and each went off to its own pasture, alone, separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end to all four. See, if, if conflict can divide us, then it's easy to pick each one of us off. But if we can be unified, instead of being, having conflict that divides us, if we can be unified, if we can overcome conflict, that becomes a powerfully unified, powerful community. And here's the thing about Nehemiah, what Nehemiah is finding, is that Nehemiah is a man who was a cupbearer to the king. And his heart broke for the things that broke God's heart. He saw that the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. And so he went to try to help rebuild the walls, but not just the physical walls. There was also a spiritual brokenness in the people. And as he's going to rebuild the walls, what happens, what always happens as new things are building is that conflict enters into the mix. And so he gets partway there and there was outside conflict that came in. We saw that last week in chapter four. And this week, We're seeing the internal conflict in the community. And if we follow the steps that Nehemiah follows in this process, you will find a process to overcome conflict in every part of life. In fact, I will tell you, if you follow the steps that Nehemiah does in this section, you can overcome many, many conflicts in your life. But here's, I'll tell you this, let me just warn you on this. It doesn't mean that every conflict will be resolved in your life. You'll have the healthy path forward, but not every conflict will be resolved. And number two, it doesn't mean that everyone will like you. Sometimes when we look at conflict in our lives, what we we hope is that when we handle it correctly, everyone will love us. And and let me just tell you, that is a fool's errand. But what Nehemiah models is a God-honoring path to overcoming conflict. And that's what we need to do. We need to follow Christ as he would guide us in how to overcome conflict in our lives. And there's three steps we're gonna walk through that Nehemiah does that we all need to do when we encounter conflict in our lives, conflict in the community. The first is this, to listen carefully. Secondly, to confront lovingly. And thirdly, to live consistently. That we would listen carefully, we would confront lovingly, and thirdly, we would live consistently. Consistently. And so we want, let's watch Nehemiah play this out by first of all, listening carefully. In chapter five, verses one through six, he describes the conflict that's happening. And he says he hears an outcry in the community. That word outcry in Hebrew is the, the same word used in the book of Exodus when it says the people cried out because of their enslavement, because they were under the, the hand of Pharaoh. And it was a, it's that same word used in this section. And that actually is a similar issue. The people are being enslaved. We'll look at that in more detail in a moment, but there's an outcry and he hears it. And here's, here's the key, here's the key. If you wanna be a great leader, you need to be a great listener. If you wanna be a great parent, you need to be a great listener. If you want to be able to, to enter into conflict well, it means that you need to spend more time listening than you do speaking. If you want to be a great parent, you've got to be a great listener. Nelson Mandela uh, was once asked this question, how is it that you brought unity in this, in this very contemptuous, uh, uh, this chaotic situation that you were in in South Africa? And he says this, he says, I learned to speak last. And he recalled as a child growing up and, and watching the tribal king who raised him lead these meetings and he would gather all the people together And he said he would let everyone speak first. And he says this, the chief's job, Mandela said, is not to tell the people what to do, but to form a consensus. Do not enter enter the debate too early. He says, if you're gonna enter into a, a conflicting situation, what you need to do is hear people out, to listen carefully to every person's complaint. Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People says this, seek to first understand, then to be understood. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And so what we see first that Nehemiah does is he hears this outcry. There's something that's going on in the community, and he listened to it. Now, here's the key. Not every complaint is worth hearing, but some complaints are worth hearing. And so what Nehemiah models in this moment, in listening carefully, is he shows compassion and discernment. Compassion, because he wants to hear people's complaints. He wants to, to lean into the issue, but he also models discernment. I wanna only uh, apply the right solution to what is a real problem. And so what is, the, what is the first thing that he does? He moves with compassion in this section and he listens to their complaint and there's four major complaints that they levy. The first is this, that there's a, the people are facing a food shortage. There's a, a famine that's described in verse two. He says, many people are struggling to find food and there's, there's a famine, but there's also a second problem that, he, that is, is laid out. Others have grain and are buying it from others, but others um, are having to mortgage their fields in order to buy grain. What ended up happening in this community is this, that Nehemiah is pulling all the people in to help rebuild the wall. And everyone is unified in this moment. They're saying, yes, we're going to rebuild the wall. We're going to stand against this enemy. But because everyone had come to help rebuild the wall, they couldn't plow their own fields. And so there was a food shortage. And so some, there's a famine that hit the land because they couldn't plow and couldn't harvest their own fields. And, and there's some people that are no longer able to buy food. They've run out of money. They couldn't sell um, their produce to make food and, and so they can no longer buy or to make money so they can no longer buy food and so some people are literally mortgaging their fields they're selling their fields so that they can buy food during this famine which led to a third problem third others not willing to mortgage their own property had to borrow money from their brothers to pay the tax so there's a tax that that artaxerxes had set in so so they're having to borrow money from people so some people are selling their fields some people are borrowing money to pay this tax, which led to the fourth problem. In order to repay their creditors, some of them had to sell their own children into slavery. And so you see this 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 problem that's like getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a famine that hit the land. People don't have enough money to buy fruit, food. They can't produce enough food. They're having to borrow money to pay um, the, the tax from the, from, from the king that they're, they're serving that's over this land. And not only that, some of them are even having to sell their own kids into slavery in order to pay their debts. And this is the outcry. This is the challenge that Nehemiah is facing. Oh my gosh, my people can't eat and they're having to sell their own kids into slavery. This is horrible. And as he listens to these complaints, he applies discernment to the situation. He says this question, how would God respond to this moment? And if you read your Bible, you see that slavery is not condoned in the Old Testament. In fact, Jewish slavery was specifically spoken against. In Exodus 22, verse 25, it says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. Notice that God says with my people. And so for the Jewish people to enslave one another because of credit or to put one of their sons or daughters into slavery, that, that wasn't supposed to, to happen. They were supposed to free their people from slavery. They were supposed to put them into slavery. They had rules back in the Old Testament that you could be a slave for six years, but you had to be released at that moment. This, this wasn't what was supposed to happen with the people of God. In Deuteronomy 23, he says it this way, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money or food or anything else of your loan. So there's another issue. like Not only are you not supposed to enslave your people, especially not perpetually, You also shouldn't charge interest on a loan to your people. And there was something that God was trying to show with his people. He says, we're community and we care for one another and we help one another when we are hurting. And so if someone is destitute, we don't take advantage of the situation. We lift that person up. We move in as the community of God and we help those that are hurting among us. That's the principle that that God is trying to put within his people. And the nation isn't doing this. The wealthy are taking advantage of the unwealthy and it's a bad situation. The people of God God are not acting like God's people. And when the people of God aren't acting like God's people, it's a problem. Now, in New Testament times, we don't have this exact prescription. We don't have this exact prescription. God was doing something unique with the nation of Israel. We don't have those exact rules played out today. But in James, he actually lays out some really clear instructions about how Christians are supposed to act with those that are in a a tough situation. In James chapter one, it says this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the Lord our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He says one of the things that Christians are supposed to do is to look after the destitute. If someone is, is economically hurt to be an orphan or a widow meant that you had no way to make money. And their culture in, in, in ancient Greece, um, women were, were not able to earn a living like a man. And if you were an orphan or a widow, that means you were, you, were, you were destitute. There was no one to care for you. And he says, the people of God are supposed to move in and care for those that are in a tough position. James 2, 5, 15 through 16 says this way, if your brother or sister is without clothing, and in need of daily food. He he uses the most extreme example. If someone walks up to you naked and starving and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, yet you do not give them what is needed and necessary for the body, what good is that? What use is your faith if you don't care for the people that are hurting among you? And so what the people of God are supposed to do is to look at people in bad circumstances and move with the help and love of God. And that may mean financial resources. It may mean that we, we, we go in and, and help them uh, financially or physically. There's all sorts of ways we do this. And I'm so glad we have a benevolence team that helps us know how to help those people well. Um, Marilyn Neish and and Tracy Martin help lead that team. And and so it's not always easy in our culture in our day and age to know how to help those that are in poverty, how to help those that are struggling. But we have a team that helps us to navigate those waters well. But because we need to say, okay, we've been given great gifts by God and there's people hurting in our community. And the people of God are supposed to move with the compassion of God to help those that are hurting among us. It's one of the values, one of the principles that we live by as a church. We wanna help those who are hurting among us. And so the first thing Nehemiah does, the first thing we gotta do is to listen carefully. Where's the fabric of our community breaking? And are we moving with compassion and discernment? Are we moving to help in a way that's actually helpful? And so Nehemiah listens, he goes, okay, here's the problems that we're facing. And, I, and he says, okay, this issue is against what God would want and so I need to move for the sake of our people. So he listens carefully and then secondly, he doesn't just sit and he doesn't tweet his complaint. The greatest gift you can give to humanity is to stop tweeting your complaints. (laughs) I'm gonna tweet that, Kevin is so dumb because he said, let let me just say, there are problems that we're all facing and we need people not to sit in their bedrooms and lob grenades. We need people to move into the lives of people and to bring help that the world needs. That's what the people of God are supposed to do. The people of God are on a mission from Jesus to help the hurting. And so what he does is he confronts lovingly. He moves into the situation in a way that can actually be helpful. I'm just spreading awareness. Okay, well, why don't you spread the love of Christ, and you move it in a way that's helpful, in a way that you can help. And so what we see, what he does, what does it mean to confront lovingly? It means you bring correction and reconciliation. It means you bring correction and reconciliation. You correct what's wrong, but then you paint a path forward. You show the path forward. Here's how we can all move forward together. There isn't one enemy out there that we lob a bomb at, We said, okay, here's the issue. And then here's how we can bring reconciliation as we move forward together. Doug Fields, um, he he writes on youth ministry all over the place. And so one of the books that he wrote uh, says this. This is uh, hilarious to me. He, He writes it to new youth pastors. And he writes this in this book. He says, conflict is inevitable because when imperfect people work in imperfect situations, problems arise Regardless of whether you're a paid volunteer, as soon as you say yes to a leadership position, you're saying yes to conflict. And leaders don't run from conflict. Good parents don't run from conflict. Good citizens don't run from conflict. Good Christians don't run from conflict. We lean in. And if we ignore the problem, Craig Rochelle says this, if if, you, if a leader ignores the problem, the problem is no longer the problem. The leader's the problem. As a parent, it's your responsibility to love and raise your kids well. As a, as a member of your business community, as a member of that, of that company, it's your responsible to, responsibility to help manage conflict well. And not to just point out the problems, but help to bring solutions. And, and to do that, we have to correct what's wrong, And help bring reconciliation. Help bring those people together. And that's what Nehemiah does. He steps into this conflict. He says, here's what's wrong. And so what he does, first of all, in verse 7, he says he took counsel with himself. Which meant he went and calmed down. Oh, that's beautiful. He says, I just needed a moment. I was so angry at these people. And I just needed a moment. I just went... (sighs) What am I going to say? And what he first said is nothing, which is so wise. He went and took counsel with himself, calm down. And then he took the confrontation to the appropriate place. He took the confrontation to the appropriate place. Public sins should be confronted publicly and private sins should be confronted Privately. In fact, Jesus gives us instructions. Like if, if someone has something against you, go, go in private. And if, and if you win them over, you've won a brother. So go in private in this situation to, to, to help bring reconciliation. Go privately first. But if it's a public sin that everyone feels, then you have a responsibility to show publicly the issue in a way that's helpful, not in a way that's hurtful. And so he takes it to the people and he says, this is the issue, verse seven or verse eight. Or verse seven, you are exacting interest on one another. That's that's one of the problems. We we're told in the Old Testament, do not do that. You're exacting interest. We need to stop that. Um, secondly, verse eight. As far as we are able, we have tried to bring the. Jewish people out of slavery, yet you're putting them back into slavery. You're selling your own brothers into slavery. That's not right. He says, this is the second issue. Not only do we, are you exacting interest? You're buying your brothers as slaves. That is wrong. He is very clear with the problems. These are the issues that we're addressing. And let me just tell you, when you're confronting issues, when you can bring clarity it's extremely helpful. When you're upset with your spouse, when you can clarify your reasons for why you're upset, that is very, very helpful in the relationship. If you're upset with your children, bring clarity to it. If you're upset with a business partner, I don't say like, I just don't like you. You're not nice. Like you're just mean and you only think about yourself. Like, okay, okay, great, 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 Attacking character doesn't help bring solutions. He doesn't attack their character. He says, you know what you're doing? You're just taking advantage because you're an evil human being and everyone hates you and that's you. He doesn't do that, but we all do that. We assassinate character. We don't address actions. But he says, I'm gonna address the actions that you're doing. And here's the problem. If you you attack character and don't address actions, you made it impossible for someone to come back. Because you all of a sudden you're in a character debate and that's not a good situation. He says, look, you're exacting interests, that's the problem. You've enslaved your brothers, that's a problem. Those are the issues we need to address. And when they hear that, verse eight says, and they were silent because they had nothing to say. You see, when you address actions, not character, people can look at the action. Kevin, you kicked the bread under the oven. That was not appropriate. She didn't say, you don't care for me, you hate me. This was your action. And you can address actions, you can modify actions, you can change actions. And then he says, not only am I confronting the problem, I'm gonna show you a way of reconciliation. I'm gonna invite you to be part of healing this. He says in verse 10, here's what you need to do. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting issue. Isn't that interesting? Nehemiah doesn't walk in there and says, you know what, y'all are all a problem. He says, you know what, I've been doing this too. I've been lending grain and getting money from it. Hey, let's just stop this he puts himself right in the middle of the issue saying, you know what, I've been a part of the problem as well, so so let's stop this action together. I've been doing it, let's all stop this action together. Verse 11, and now let's return the fields. And then he says, let's make a promise. Verse 13 is he lines out this elaborate promise of like, hey, if if you go back to this, God's gonna shake you out. Like I'm shaking out this this piece of cloth. And so he says, let's make a promise before all of these people that we're not going to be hurting one another. We're going to be helping one another. He says, here's your path forward. Here's what reconciliation looks like. He confronts the problem and he says, and here's what it looks like to be reconciled. He lays it out in front of them. And those people say, yes, I wanna be a part of that. As you're encountering conflict or conflicting situations, do you address it this way? Do you listen carefully? And do you confront lovingly, hey, here's the problem, here's how we can move forward. It's so helpful when you bring clarity to the situation. And listen, people that make mistakes know they've made a mistake. People that are doing the wrong thing, they know when they've messed up. And the most loving thing you can do is not just continue to heap on insult after insult, is to show them a path forward. It's to help them where they are and help them to walk in freedom. When I was first uh, in college, I was working with my cousin in Colorado painting houses And and he he shows me the process that I'm gonna play in painting houses, which was not painting houses. Um, It was power washing houses so that he could paint them effectively because I would not have. And he says, so here's what you do. And he gives me a power wash machine. He's showing me the whole thing. And there's a tip on the edge of this power washer. And he says, when you put the tip on, make sure that it's completely sealed in there. Otherwise it's just gonna fly off and you'll never find it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. He leaves, he leaves me at this house to power wash it. I go to put the power washer clip in there. I do it and I point it at the house and it shoots over the house into the force behind it. This was day one on the job. He gave me one rule. Don't shoot this into oblivion. Just do, and I'm like, oh no. And then I walk around for the next 10 minutes going, what am I going to do? Is there another piece somewhere? I'm looking out in the forest to find it. There's no way I'm finding it. It's in Colorado, beautiful trees, beautiful pine trees, lots of coverage uh, for this little thing. And I just call him up and I'm like, Brock, I did exactly what you told me not to. Can you find this piece? There's no finding this piece, man. (laughs) And he drives back over and he just laughs at me. He says, let me show you how to do this one more time. Here's how you put it in. Here's what you do. do and I wish I could say that was my only mistake that I made with him. A couple days later, a couple days later, he's like, hey, can you back up this, uh, my, my uh, father in law's minivan? Just back it up and get it out of the way for this deal. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he lived like on the side of a mountain. I'm from Houston, right? The mountains are the overpasses, right? And, and so I start backing it up and I go off the edge of this mountain. And I'm like, why is the gas not working anymore? And I, I jump out of the car. I'm like, oh, there's a ledge there. That's not good. And, and I go over and, and the car is like hanging off the edge. And I'm like, I got to talk to Brock again. <laughs> and I get out of the car. I, I climb out this way through the car. I get out. Um, I go to Brock and go, Brock, I need some help. It's like, what happened? I go, car's off the mountain. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> he walks out to me and he just laughs at me. He's like, <laughs> flatlander. And then he hooks it up and pulls it out. And, and, and I remember in that moment going, in my, in my life, whenever something went wrong, all the tension just went really high. Like everyone just yelled, like, what are you doing? I can't believe, like all the tension went really, really high. And then I watched Brock lovingly correct me and lovingly show me a path forward. And then I just saw Christians acting very differently than everyone else I had interacted with. And I saw that and I was like, that is beautiful. When he corrected me in my stupid mistakes but showed me a path toward reconciliation. That's what Jesus does with each one of us. We're lost in sin. We make all sorts of mistakes. And he doesn't ask us to fix ourselves. Jesus dies in our place for our sins and shows us a path forward. He brings us into relationship. He says, yeah, there's problems that you've created, but I will help you walk in freedom if you've come to me If we come to Jesus Christ, so he listens carefully. Nehemiah confronts lovingly. And thirdly, he lives consistently. One of the greatest gifts you can give people is when your beliefs are modeled in your behaviors. When your actions align with your affiliations. When what you believe comes out in what you do, that is a beautiful picture that the world needs to see. People don't read their Bibles, but they read their Christians. And they want Christians to actually look like Christians. And so what Nehemiah did at the end of this, from 14 to 19, is that he plays out, he lives out the values that he wants in the community. He lives them out perfectly in front of the nation. In a leadership book by James M. Coots called The Leadership Challenge, it says this Exemplary leaders know that if they want to gain commitment and achieve the highest standards, they must be models of that behavior they expect in others. If you want to lead people well, what they're looking for is you to model the behavior you want seen. Are you living out the values that you possess? Verse 14, it says this way, moreover, at the same time, I was appointed to be their governor of the land. They said, you're leading well, Nehemiah, you're actually gonna be established as governor of this area. And then he says, okay, if I wanna be a good governor, what do I need to do in this situation? He says, I'm gonna learn from the past and I'm gonna model the way forward. That's what it means to live consistently. You learn from the failures of the past and you model the way forward. It says this in verse 15, the former governors who were there before laid a heavy burden on the people and they took from them a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver even their servants lorded it over them but i did not do so because of the fear of the lord the first thing he did is he learned from the past he says there's some mistakes that the previous governors have done there was a way that they governed this land that wasn't consistent with the values of god They put a heavy burden of tax on the people. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to do that. They lorded it over them. Isn't that fascinating? That's the phrase he chose. They took their position and they lorded it over them. As soon as they got their way to the top, they said, now you will serve me. And that's the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, it says this. Now he's telling his disciples, now you believe that that once you get a position of authority, everyone's responsibility is is to serve you. And he tells them, not so with you. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's like the same phrase. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He says, what the world wants is their leaders to model the behaviors that they want everyone else to to embody. And what is that behavior? Servant leadership. That you don't lord your power, you serve those who are underneath you. You see those who are hurt and and you learn, don't repeat the past mistakes. Everyone else does it, but God's people don't. But we're like little kids. So I confront my child one kid will be screaming upstairs, like a screaming child, which is like, I just, oh, it's a bane of my existence. And I'm like, why are you screaming? And then one yells, he hit me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry they hit you. And then I go back to that person, the other child. Why did you hit your brother? why did you hit your sister? Because they were being annoying to me. <laughs> and then, so did you hit them back? So I hit them first and they hit me back. And then we're in this like, this weird little moment and I'm like okay how can we make this better well she hit me well he hit me okay so if we go back in time to before they hit you I can make them stop the potential of hitting you or stop the potential of being annoying and then come back forward in time and then we'll be okay in this moment now when I say that to my children they're very confused (laughs) much like you are You're like, I've watched a movie about that. No, you didn't. You didn't. Because it's an absurd argument. Many of us, we've been hurt in the past. People have done the wrong things to us. In fact, and when we get our moment in the power, we're like, now I will do to them what they did to me. I will be five. That's what we've just told the world. I will be five and I will make them do to me because I, they did to me. And I'm a, like, there's that whole mindset. Once I get my power, I will do everything to make sure that you suffer because I suffered in that spot. And we're like, what are you doing? No, no, you're behaving like children And our country, does it? Once I get my moment, I'm gonna do my thing and you'll suffer like I suffered. And Jesus says, you know what? There is someone that needs to pay for the sins of the world. There's someone that needs to pay for the brokenness we all face. And we can keep pointing the finger and our country and our nation and our world has done that for centuries. And Jesus says, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I will take on the sin of the world. And the reason Christians can forgive and move forward is because we already have a sacrifice. Every sin that anyone has done to you has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And any sin that you will ever commit to anyone else has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. And you know what? He doesn't need to bleed anymore. He doesn't need to take anything. He paid for all sin, past, present, and future by his perfect life and death on the cross. And so your spouse, you can forgive them. Why? Because Jesus died for them. That person at work that you just, ah, Jesus died for them. Those political people that have a different opinion than you, whatever slide they're on, great. Jesus died for them. There's a way of reconciliation, and we can't repeat the mistakes of the past. Instead, we say, no, all sin has been put on Jesus Christ. And I pray that if they haven't received forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would. And then we model a way forward. We say, we're going to live differently from here on out. I'm going to learn from that past, and I'm going to live like Jesus in the future. And the world is begging Christians to just live like Christians. It's begging the people of God to model the character of Christ in their world, to live that way forward. And let me tell you what, when Christians do that, when Christians model the way forward by their excellent life, the world stops and stares. Several years ago, there was an article by um, Matthew Paris, he's a, a London uh, Times um, journalist, and he grew up in, 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 uh, in Africa he grew up in Malawi and he went back after years later after 45 years back to Malawi to see what life was like and he writes this in an article from several years ago he says this i'm a confirmed atheist but i've become convinced of the enormous contribution that christian evangelism makes in africa Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transfer- transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Isn't that fascinating? An atheist saying, "You know what, you know what these people need? They need Christians to be Christians. And they need evangelism that changes not just the actions of others, but the hearts of people. And when hearts are changed, then life changes. When hearts are changed, then the issues get fixed. We don't just need more food in tough places, although we do need food there, but we also need Christians there loving people to Jesus. We need Christians living like Christians, modeling the way. So how do we overcome the conflicts of our world? We listen carefully. We confront lovingly with the grace of Jesus Christ. And then we live consistently. We say, my heart has been changed by Jesus and I'm not gonna model the failures of the past, I'm gonna walk forward as Christ's son and daughter to model the change the world needs to see. Let me tell you what, I don't know what conflict you're facing, but if I could do that, I know this, Christ should be honored in whatever conflict I'm facing. And I may not change their mind, but I can stand before my creator in confidence that, Lord, I honored you in this moment. Lord, I honored you in my steps. Lord, I'm trusting you with the results. And that's actually what Nehemiah prayed at the end of this. Verse 19, he says, Lord, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. At the end of the day, we do what we can under God and we entrust the results to him. So let me ask you a few questions in closing. The first is this, are you listening carefully to your spouse, to your kids, to people in business? Are you listening carefully to what they're saying, not just waiting to speak? Secondly, are you, are you confronting lovingly? Are you moving in a way that brings both correction and the potential of reconciliation into those conflict relationships? Thirdly, are you living consistently? Is the Jesus you claim to love changing your heart from the inside out so that as you're interacting in the world, you're living consistently with the Jesus you claim to love? Just you close your eyes? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us the model to walk through conflict in our lives, and you give it give us through a very ordinary man, a man who was not perfect, a man who was who was guilty actually of the same things that he was going to confront in others. And I know, Lord, that many of us here in this moment can think of conflicts that we have handled inappropriately. Relationships that we've left burned because we have not moved forward as you would have us move forward, but we've, we've been selfish. So Lord, I pray that you would um, first just forgive us as you say you will in 1 John, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We pray, Lord, you'd first forgive us. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, wisdom to navigate the conflicts that we face in our daily lives in a way that honors you. And Lord, we pray for your spirit to fill us Lord, we cannot live the life you've called us to live without the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. So, Spirit, make us alive. Make us yours. Change our hearts and minds to love the things that you love so we can live the lives you've called us to live. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I lift up each person here to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.